Welcome. I'm Michael Krasny, and I want to welcome you to the fourth episode of the podcast Gray Matter. That's Gray with an E, conversations with me, Michael Krasny. Indeed, I want to also invite you and urge you, those of you listening to this podcast, to find out more about us by simply going to our website at graymatter.show. Again, that's Gray with an E. And I hope you'll become a member of our weekly podcast episodes, which feature in-depth and interactive interviews with leading opinion shapers, newsmakers, and remarkable and premier guests. In fact, a leading authority of technology and innovation is our guest today. And let me tell you a little bit about Amber Mack. She's president of Amber Mack Media Content Agency, and there's a, no dearth of content to talk about with her. She's a leading authority, as I said, on technology and innovation, author of a couple of best-selling books. She's a netcasting veteran, uh, also uh, a stellar figure in Canada television, and a celebrated keynote speaker former host of an award-winning podcast, as I said, and also last year was named one of six Bay Street Bull Women of the Year. Those are Distinguished Leadership Awards, which are presented to women in Canada. Hers was for leadership in the tech sector, and so pleased to have you with us, Amber. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me on your show, and congratulations. Uh, I know you just launched the show, so uh, I've had a chance to listen to a couple episodes, and hopefully you're having fun so far. Yeah, we're having fun, and I hope you were mesmerized by those episodes or something even more than that. We also have a history that I didn't even know about. You were part of the California Report as an intern back in 2000, you told me, and uh, have some roots in terms of your own history, both in San Francisco and Boston. I want to talk to you actually about your story first. Uh, it's kind of a female Horatio Alger story. You had a party line in terms of your telephone at home. So did I. Went to a one-room schoolhouse. All these things are things I want to talk to you about. But first, let's talk about your history in tech because I know you were, during the dot-com uh, movement, you were very involved in startups for quite a while, but then moved into a female-focused portal for uh, Microsoft. And that was really what put you on the map, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my background um, in terms of schooling was in journalism. So I always imagined that um, I would become a news anchor or a news reporter. I decided to move out to California in 1999 to San Francisco, and I was going to pursue my dreams of being a broadcaster out there. And I started to realize how much more was happening when it comes to the world of technology and uh, startups. And so I, I got a job at a startup and kind of, you know, continued to do some stuff like you mentioned. Uh, interning at KQED, but I really started getting immersed in the technology space over the next few years. Eventually came back to Canada, worked for Microsoft for a year, and then fortunately I landed a, a role alongside uh, tech veteran Leo Laporte, and I was one of his co-hosts on a show called Call for Help. And uh, from that point on, I really started to build my career as someone who was helping to demystify technology. This is going to sound incestuous, but I also worked with Leo at KGO before I was at KQED. QED and a uh, terrific guy and a very successful guy in the world of podcasting. Wondering though, um, you know, you, you had, you know, weren't you also an English major? I'd say that as a emeritus English professor, journalism and English, wasn't it? wasn't it? Yeah, so I have two degrees. I have an undergraduate in English and a postgrad in journalism. Well, it's, it's quite a career you've had, a number of careers that you've had. And I wanted to talk to you about tech now and particularly the way you see things, uh, particularly from the vantage point or from the portal of being a woman. Um, there, a friend of mine, whom you may know, Julian Guthrie, put out a book called Alpha Girls, all about these successful Silicon Valley women. But I did a lot of shows about all the misogyny and kind of toxic masculinity that women had to face and the difficulties, kind of frat boy stuff in terms of the world of technology. It's a lot better now. 
And how much better is it? It's a, a great question. I think you're exactly right. I, I think uh, in the technology industry, although I think this could probably be said of other industries as well, uh, I think it's difficult for a lot of women to really rise up the ranks. And, um, you know, I certainly experienced that as a woman in the technology space early on in my career. And so I always felt as though I had to work a little bit harder than anyone else in the room. And I think what's interesting now in 2022 is that more and more doors have been open. I think there are still challenges that do exist. But at least there are role models in technology in terms of women who are at the top of their game and in different verticals. And so for me, it feels like it's been a, a really long uh, journey to get here. But I, I do think that we're starting to see some progress. And uh, that, of course, is, is just so refreshing, especially because we know we need more women in technology. We need more girls when it comes to science and technology. And, and this kind of shapes the future of technology, which impacts every single one of us. Yeah, you said see it to be it, and you're seeing it a lot more, obviously, and, and that's uh, to the good. It's, it's, it's good to hear you speak in that optimistic way about it. Wondering also, though, about since you said you worked harder than most, get back to that Horatio Alger ethos that I was talking about before. Uh, your humble beginnings, let's talk about this for a moment. I mean, it's made you more, in some ways, uh, shall we say, driven, more motivated, more hardworking. I think anyone who is uh, listening to this right now, especially if you grew up in a, a rural area, maybe you didn't have a well-connected family, maybe you didn't have your life planned out for you, anyone who grew up in those places like I did, I think all of a sudden, you know, you have a different drive. And and so in those early days when I was growing up on Prince Edward Island, and it was a very simple life, like you said, I, I was on a party line, I went to a two-room schoolhouse, there was not a lot of technology around, I knew that if I was going to be become anything, I was going to have to create that thing myself. You know, there was no one uh, who was going to do it for me. I had, uh, you know, a lot of student loans that needed to be paid off. And uh, I had to really take that, that work ethic that I had grown up with and apply it to what I was building and what I was doing. So those early years for me really shaped me. Uh, if you know anything about the history of Prince Edward Island, one of the most popular books is, of course, Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery. And uh, Anne, in, in my opinion, you know, early on in my career, she really was a role model for me. She was a, a young feminist. Uh, she did things differently. And so uh, I think I really kind of took some of that spirit of growing up in a place like Prince Edward Island, and I was able to go out there and build something for myself. I always love the line of the great British poet William Wordsworth uh, child is father to the man. Uh, we certainly can say that in terms of women as well and ought to. Which gets me back to women in tech for a moment. Uh, if you'll consider this question about how you might really tell parents in terms of getting their children schooled better and getting them more motivated, but also getting them geared toward technology if they want to be. I mean, other than you know, learning STEM and learning code and those kinds of things, what kind of inspiration would you offer? Well, you know, I was doing an event recently and uh, a friend of mine uh, was on a panel with me and we were talking about STEM, uh, particularly how it's important for young girls to uh, get invested in STEM. And she had said something to me, which I think is worth noting for parents who are listening. She said, you know, I think we need to strip the, the S away from STEM. And the one reason she said that is we're getting more and more women or young girls going into the sciences, right? We're, we're seeing a, a little bit more balance there, but we still have so much work to do when it comes to 
to technology. And I think the one way you can get young girls interested in technology is really to have a broader definition of what technology means. Not everybody has to be a coder. And I think a lot of the times we talk about STEM in those terms. One of the things that I was able to do early in my career was uh, work at Razorfish, which was a company that at the time was building websites. And I was an information architect for those websites, which meant I was laying out information and designing how the content would be sorted on those sites. That's not an overly technical job, but it was an important job in the tech industry. So for me, it feels like we need to kind of broaden that term as far as technology, take young girls and their interests, whatever they might be, and show them a path that is in the technology sector to be able to work towards those dreams. But again, it can't just all be about coding. Can it also be about the humanities, things like literature, which you studied, which I taught for many years? I like to weave those things together. I believe in a liberal education. I mean, are you on board there? Absolutely. I mean, I think you make a really good point. I mean, even AI ethics is one example. If you think about artificial intelligence and the impact that it's having on our world today, if we think about uh, companies that are putting together any type of code of ethics as far as using AI and other technologies, I mean, these are the types of jobs that do exist that are in demand. But again, they aren't those traditional tech jobs. So I think what what we all need to do as both parents, as educators, as leaders, is really to think about the tech sector in a, a much broader way. And I do believe if we do that and we talk about it in those terms, we will be able to attract not just women, but more people of color that will allow us to have diversity that we need in order to design technology of tomorrow. This is Gray Matter podcast with Michael Krasny, Conversations with me. And uh, since you mentioned uh, AI, uh, I want to bring up something Elon Musk said. Uh, we don't need to talk about Tesla or uh, Sergey Brin uh, or other things that are in the news with, with Elon Musk. But I was always struck by his saying that AI to him is more threatening, more menacing than anything, including nuclear weapons. And I wonder what he meant by that. And then I did a little investigating. He was talking about drones that could go in and make face identification, everything. I mean, you've had a lot of experience with AI. And what are your thoughts about the dangers? first of all, or uh, I mean, a lot of positive things are coming out of it. Let's make that clear. But your concerns? I think like anyone who starts to understand how technology unfolds and affects our lives, uh, what we see with artificial intelligence is that like all technology, it was initially designed to improve our lives. Like think about AI in healthcare as one example. If we know that it, an, a scan that is leveraging the power of artificial intelligence can detect breast cancer 30 times faster than a doctor, this AI makes so much sense to be able to change our lives. But what we start to see is that like any technology, if we don't necessarily use it responsibly, then it gets, in some cases, out of control. And that's where the fear really, really sits. And so I see technology leaders like Elon Musk warning us about robots that may turn on us and attack us all. And, and I do think there's an element of fear that we need to have. But more and more, I think we need to also focus on those positive stories. At the same time, you know, there are governments around the world. Uh, Canada is one of those governments uh, that does have uh, uh, an AI uh, policy in place that is just new that talks about the ethical application of AI. And I think any technology company that is leveraging the power of AI needs to be able to think in those terms so that AI can, in fact, help humans and not necessarily hurt them. Well, I saw an interview you did. I know you did a number of them with Prime Minister Trudeau, and he was talking about the dangers of 
radicalization through the internet and the kinds of things that we've seen in terms of interference with elections. I mean, all of those darker sides of it, but also talking about all the good things that have connected people and all the positive sides of expanding knowledge and so forth. It's very difficult for many people to weigh these things in the balance. Tell us how you see it. Well, one of the things I had a chance to talk to uh, Prime Minister Trudeau about was really algorithms of hate. I mean, that was one of the questions I had asked them. And and I, I think what we see right now in terms of those algorithms, whether it's on Facebook or, or Twitter or any other platform, is that they are most of the time amplifying hate, um, divisive content. I mean, this is how they make money. They don't make money off content that kind of brings us together. And what we've seen over the past few years is that more and more, this has not just affected us online. But of course, it's seeping out into the real world. Uh, that's where we see so many issues in terms of people not finding ways to agree with one another, so many issues in terms of that divisiveness that does exist as well. So what I see is not necessarily that the, the problem is technology. The problem really is in our leaders. And if you look at the big tech industry as one example, I would say we lack good leaders in that industry. And this is a problem that has plagued the tech industry for decades now. I'm, I'm waiting for those new leaders to come around, that next generation that seems to use technology in a more responsible way. But right now, whether it's Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg, I think at the end of the day, those are not the leaders that we need right now in 2022. Well, I happen to hear Alex Jones uh, talking about, uh, this is a guy who's on trial now for defamation in terms of Sandy Hook and will, uh, I hope, pay lots of money. Uh, but talking about, and he's, you know, used the internet to spread those kind of lies. Uh, but he was also talking about Bill Gates eating children. And you wonder, this kind of toxic stuff is just out there. It's, it's in everything we breathe in the internet now. Uh, and for all the good that the internet does, and for all the connectedness, as I said, this has to be weighed in the balance. I mean, I find sometimes it's, um, obviously gets my blood pressure up. I mean, just thinking about all the evil that's out there and all the people who have come out from under rocks. We have to kind of assess this and think about, especially in democratic terms, how we deal with it. Absolutely. You know, I, I was just reading uh, an issue of The Economist, and, and I noticed one of the advertisements uh, was from Meta, of course, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, and it was talking about uh, the metaverse, and it was uh, an exciting advertisement that was talking about how the metaverse could change our lives. And at the time, I'm thinking to myself as I read this, you know, you have so many problems in terms of the amplification of hate within platforms like Facebook and Instagram. You would think that you would try to solve some of those problems before you start going down this path of the metaverse. But to me, it just feels like Mark Zuckerberg has kind of turned a, a blind eye to the problems that he has himself and his company created. And he's trying to hang this shiny object, you know, just uh, out of the corner of our eyes. So we're totally distracted by the damage that it has done to our democracies around the world. Not only our democracies, but you think about Facebook and Myanmar, which used to be Burma. You think about Facebook in so many contexts, unfortunately. I don't want to necessarily rag on it, but uh, I think I have very similar feelings about it that you have, and I think it has done an immense amount of damage. Uh, and Zuckerberg keeps talking about not wanting to censor and wanting to protect the First Amendment and all of those kinds of things, but how far you push that. Uh, I mean, I thought, actually, Prime Minister Trudeau summed up things really quite well. Um, I would like uh, some of our leaders to have that kind of uh, consciousness and sensitivity and awareness that he seemed to display with you. And you sp displayed a great deal of that sensitivity and awareness uh, in the books that you've written about the Internet. Uh, I want to talk about them with you. Uh, we've got some questions coming in, though, and, and let me go to a few of these. 
this is Craig McFarland from Boston who says, most careers zigzag. Looking back at yours so far, what opportunities caused you to pivot the most and what expectations did you let go? Thanks for that, Craig. Uh, I love Craig. that question. You know, a, a friend of mine, Mitch Joel, uh, had talked about uh, your career path as not necessarily a straight line, but more of, of a squiggle. And I, I think that's absolutely true for most people. One of the things I've always done, including back in those early days of working during the dot-com boom, is I've always had more than one job. And I don't know that if that was because I'm insecure about uh, my professional choices, but I've always believed it was good to develop skills and have things to fall back on. So uh, I think especially now in 20. 2022, one of the most important things that people can do, and I've always embraced this with my pivots and changes over the years, is that um, I've always been developing new skills. You know, even though I have a small team around me now, you know, I still know how to go in and, and edit basic audio or video. I can post my own content. I can do those types of things. And, and it has always been important to me that I understood how to do those things and had those skills in place. Because all of a sudden, that means that you have the ability to pivot. Um, you know, the pandemic for us, was a great example of that. I used to travel every single week for speaking events in person. And then we started to invest in this studio space and I was doing uh, multiple speaking events every week. And we started to recognize that this was actually a healthier path for our business. And now I'm not doing that in-person speaking at the same rate. So I think if you're open, you're developing new skills, you're changing, you can adapt. I think all of a sudden, not only is it good for your business, but quite frankly, it can open up brand new opportunities as well. Let me go to another one of our listeners, uh, Hasmuk uh, Gujar is in Cape Town, South Africa, and he wants to know, when you launched podcasts, the social media landscape was less complex, less crowded today. It's about capture audience and their screen moments. As a newbie podcaster, what would you do differently today? Well, I, I think that, um, again, if we think back to the early days of podcasting, my first podcasts were with Leo Laporte. Uh, we did a podcast called uh, Net at Night, um, the, the Social Hour. There was a couple in those early days. Uh, I think many people flocked to them because there really wasn't a lot of competition. Now there is. And uh, I think if you are a new podcaster, one of the best things that you can do is to do what we're doing today. You know, invest in doing video as well so you have social clips that you can add online to promote your podcast. I think it becomes much uh, less so just about the audio conversation and more about those other assets that you can create around that. So that's one tip. Um, I think secondly, going really narrow, if you if you want to develop a new podcast, um, I do a, a podcast uh, on the mining sector. There, there really isn't a lot of competition in that area, uh, which is probably not a big surprise, but sometimes going more niche with your podcast can also help you out of the gate, especially if you're new to the industry. So there's a few things and tricks and trades that you can do. And of course, um, you know, invest in equipment so that uh, your audio and all of those things are as professional as possible. There are so many podcasts now, though, it boggles the mind. If you want to rent uh, an apartment in Manhattan, I saw that they advertise apartments with, you can have a studio here that can turn into a podcast. Uh, I mean, there, it, there's a kind of ubiquity to podcasts now that uh, I think is, yeah. a, is, is a concern to those of us who do podcasts, because how do you distinguish yourself from the hordes that are out there of people trying to get people downloading. Yeah, I, I think it's it's hard for everybody, right? And and I think about some of the earlier podcasts that we did. We really didn't have to try as hard as we do now to be able to capture the attention of listeners. And um, it's harder and harder. But I think once you do start to grow that audience and build that audience and people start to listen to your stories, uh, I think it's probably one of the most powerful mediums. I mean, you've been in this space your entire career, so you understand just the relationship that you can build with your listeners. I've also worked in TV, and I don't think I've ever had that same sort of 
stronger relationship, as I've seen through audio and podcasts as well. Oh, audio uh, is where I certainly made my bones, and you know, I have a lot to say about audio. As I worked in television too, but I find audio much more compelling. You know, the theater of the mind, and all of that. Here's uh, Chad Lafarge. Uh, who I know is listening to us from Missouri, and he says, what can I tell my daughters to prepare them about creating their own paths as far as technology or careers are concerned? Well, I think one of the best things that parents can do, aside from some of my advice as far as uh, broadening the technology uh, definition, is also to be able to better understand technology yourselves. Uh, I wrote a book or co-wrote a book years ago that was really focused on parents who were trying to guide their parents in, in the technology space. And it struck me that a lot of parents didn't actually understand the technology their kids we're using. I think this is the number one issue that you have right now in families when it comes to screen time as one example is that uh, if you dismiss everything your kid is doing as them just spending time on TikTok or not understanding their, their habits or, or the trends that are taking place, I think all of a sudden you're not able to tap into their excitement or their curiosity about that space in the first place. So my number one tip to parents is uh, be a guide, right? You know, if you think about technology, this is one of those things as parents we need to be able to help our children better understand it in every other way, whether it's what they eat or how they sleep, we do act as guardians for them to advise them. But for some reason with technology, many times we've just said, hey, you know, you're kind of on your own. And that, of course, causes so many issues and I think really discourages people from entering into this space in the first place. We're talking Amber Mack and uh, this is The Gray Matter. That's Gray with an E podcast. I'm Michael Krasny. Um, what about advice on remote learning? I know you did a lot of research on this, particularly during the pandemic, and came up with some pretty startling statistics. 76%, I think, uh, was the one that grabbed my attention of uh, people who didn't know how to work from home. But also, I mean, you see how things are changing now, uh, extraordinary changes going on. But uh, also all of the problems with mental health, with anxiety, with back problems and so forth. What do you tell people yeah, who are making this? Because uh, there are people just, as we're speaking here, we're trying to make this accommodation to it. What do you tell them? Well, I, I think we can all uh, agree, at least at some level, if you have the ability to work uh, entirely remotely or in a, a hybrid way, uh, that this is the future in terms of people, especially for knowledge workers. But uh, at the same time, I think what we saw in the early days of the pandemic, and I've done a lot of speaking about the future of work, and it, it struck me, you know, you mentioned some of the stats, that people really didn't understand how to work home in, in a work from home in a healthy way. And, and all of a sudden, you have more issues um, um, then I think more uh, than leaders are able to be able to deal with. And so I thought it was fascinating in the early days of the pandemic, I had uh, spoken to a small tech company. And one of the first things that they did out of the gate when the pandemic hit and all their workers went home is that they actually developed a, a blueprint or a guide, which was their work from home guide, which laid out what was expected from workers. And it would say things uh, such as, we don't expect you to always be online. We expect you to still take breaks for lunch. Uh, we expect you to keep uh, your meetings to a minimum. You know, you don't always need a, a one-hour Zoom meeting as one example. And so I think when it comes to remote work, leaders have to do a much better job in terms of guiding those workers at home, giving them the tools that they need, but also putting kind of a, a framework in place so that these workers understand what is expected from them. Nobody wants to sit on Zoom for eight or 10 hours a day. Uh, so we need to be able to kind of 
leverage the power of remote work in a way that it's advantageous for companies. You know, there was a, a report from TopTal a little while ago that said that the average company saves about $22,000 per remote worker. That's a significant amount. But we can't just leave people flailing at home and not worry about things like their, their mental health or even their physical health. What do you uh, say to the leaders who want to find that information, want to find how they can provide guidelines? Where are they? Are there paradigms out there that they can access? I think it's starting to change. I mean, I think we're starting to see good examples of companies that are leading in a, a more substantial way and a healthier way. Uh, you know, a great example of this, I, I think about some organizations that are really expanding on their uh, their digital uh, wellness portfolios for their teams. And what I mean by that, just to break it down a little bit, is that they're saying to people, we know that you may be suffering at home, we can't see you every day, so all of a sudden we're going to give subscriptions to every single employee that we have to to uh, Headspace or to Calm, both being meditation or wellness apps. And we actually care about how people are faring at home and we're gonna again be there to help. So I think this idea of a, a digital wellness uh, portfolio that is given to workers at home to be able to help them if they need those tools in place, even access to mental health chatbots. Uh, there are a few out there that um, can really help individuals. Uh, but again, I think even just simple things like saying, hey, you know, maybe Friday is a day where you, you don't have any remote meetings, you're just supposed to get your work done, whatever that might be. But I think more than anything, I think workers need that leadership and, and that guidance in place. And you know, I don't talk about leadership all the time in, in all of my presentations, but I do think right now we lack good leadership in many areas of our lives. Amber, I wanted to ask you about a couple of things in relationship to your books, which were both bestsellers. And uh, certainly recommended, particularly the one I want to begin asking you about, which is about uh, how you can outsmart your kids uh, online. Uh, and, I mean, there are gizmos now that you can put on the Internet to essentially watch your kids and everything else. I know that's part of it. But what do you tell parents just in terms of really making sure that, because there's so much porn online now, there's so many, again, toxic things like we spoke about before, that your kids don't find access to these because they're so easy to access. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that um, really struck me in terms of researching and writing that book, and even um, since writing that book, is that uh, I think parents need to think about screen time in a different way. And to the parents that are listening right now, I would say, you know, focus on active versus passive screen time and start to understand uh, the definitions of each of those. So a great example is passive screen time is my 13-year-old is watching TikTok videos and he's scrolling endlessly for hours. It's very passive. He may enjoy it. He may need it because he's had a busy day. Uh, but what I'm trying to encourage more and more is active screen time. So he also uses this e-commerce site um, where he is able to uh, sell clothing that he finds at thrift stores and make his own money. Uh, I love this idea. This, again, is more about being active, learning skills such as selling and marketing and e-commerce. So if you can actually get your kids, and I think this even applies to the younger kids, um, they may not have their own online store, but they could, in fact, create art or learn how to edit video or shoot photos, if you have them investing more and more in that active screen time as a parent, that can lead you down a, a more successful path than, again, allowing them to just become children who are consuming content. Um, I, I believe this is also kind of a, a nuanced uh, uh, view in some ways in, in that I think it's also important to understand the context of that screen time. If your kid's been 
playing soccer for you know three or four hours, maybe they need to zone out for a bit. But generally speaking, just think about it in terms of that active and passive screen time and try to guide in that direction of active. That's good advice. Uh, it's sage advice. But I wonder about the fact that a lot of kids get so hooked on things like TikTok. I mean, it's almost like an addiction. And I wonder also if you have thoughts about something that's concerned me for years now, maybe changing neurons in kids. Uh, I mean, the whole neurological map of their minds may be going through some changes because they're spending so much time online and there's so much investment, even if they're not addicted to what's online. Yeah, that definitely worries me a lot. You know, uh, I was uh, moderating a, a, a panel a few months ago, and uh, we had a, a panelist on, and uh, we were talking about actually the, the war in Ukraine, but um, we ended up down this path of talking about uh, technology and algorithms. Uh, his name is Ian, Ian Bremer, who you probably uh, are I know familiar Ian. with. Oh, yeah, I've had yeah, him on my, uh, my program. Yeah, he's a, a great um, person to follow great on guest. social media. Really smart, and and one of the things he said, he said, you know, the difference today in 2022 is that it used to be that when it came to raising children, it was all about nature versus nurture. Now it's nature, nurture, and algorithms, because algorithms are more and more actually impacting our, our children and how they're raised and the content they see and and what they believe to be true. And and when he said that, you know, even being in this space, that is just a, a really frightening concept. And it kind of loops back around to a couple of conversations we've had about the technology that uh, our kids are using today. Well, it's, uh, I think, a real brief for parents monitoring their children to a great degree, the necessity of that. There's just too much out there that can entrap and algorithms. Are we putting too much reliance on algorithms? I mean, that's an argument that certainly many people, not only in Bremer, put forward, taking over our lives, guiding us, not necessarily in the best ways always. I think we are. Again, you know, if you, you think about algorithms that can um, have a positive impact, they do, of course, exist. I had mentioned off the top that conversation around AI and healthcare, lots of great applications of uh, artificial intelligence and algorithms. But I think what we're seeing right now is that when we allowed algorithms to essentially decide the societies that we are growing up in online, then it, it starts to be hugely problematic. And, you know, we've talked, of course, about a little bit about uh, algorithms of hate and misinformation and disinformation. But when it comes to our children, Facebook themselves even understands and knows that um, self-harm content uh, at one point was was served up to uh, especially uh, tweens and, and teen girls uh, in a way that it was, is of course, having a huge impact on that generation growing up. And they knew that this was happening. They, they continued to do this, not necessarily fixing the issues that exist. So uh, the the algorithms that we see right now within these technology companies are just not being used responsibly. And, and the most devastating part of that is that they're doing their own research that shows that there is harm being done and they're not making significant changes. How a tech leader in this day and age can go to sleep at night knowing the harm that they are doing when it comes to some of these social platforms is totally beyond me. All came out in congressional testimony. It's all there, you know, in the record uh, in the Congress of the United States. And uh, certainly the harm that's being done to young girls uh, seems almost self-evident. But like you say, the kind of stasis and paralysis and immobility or just apathy and unwillingness of the tech companies to do what needs to be done, particularly Meta, Facebook, I think, in the context we're talking about. All right, I'll get off my high horse here. Uh, but, you know, uh, a lot of what you do, I mean, I wonder how you 
Well, let me go to a question first. I'm thinking about how you curate stories because there's such a range of the stories that you follow. Um, people, This is from Gerald, who's up there in British Columbia, uh, in fact, because people talk about fear of AI, but recently uh, a gentleman who communicates, there was a gentleman who communicates with plants. Are we talking nascent trivets here? <laughs> I'm not sure what he's bringing up here, but uh, there is a lot of talk about, uh, I've got to spread my screen a little bit here, uh, about people who can... Um, Talk to plants? Is AI trying to talk to plants? Do we know? Well, you know, I think one of the most fascinating applications of AI beyond healthcare is in agriculture. And um, I've had a chance to dip my foot into this space a little bit. I, I certainly am no expert, um, but I do understand that um, there are, are, are plenty of ways right now that AI is being used in agriculture to uh, detect diseases uh, within crops, as one example, uh, to help to better be able to grow crops. Um, so to me, it feels like there's a lot of opportunity in agriculture. Um, there was a, a company, I think it's called Soma Detect. Um, what they do, uh, you know, beyond uh, um, talking about plants is they actually analyze uh, cow's milk to detect any issues with cow's milk. Um, I had a chance to uh, do a tour of a, a dairy farm not that long ago. And uh, it's amazing to see technology in farms today. You know, the cows are wearing Fitbits, the milk is being analyzed by AI, and more and more the farmers aren't necessarily doing that manual labor. But instead, what they're doing is they're analyzing data. Uh, what a shift in terms of an industry that typically relied on that uh, manual labor in terms of different skill sets of today. Well, this is one of the things that I uh, appreciate about the work you do. I mean, the range and, and the uh, potpourri of things that you cover. I saw a story you did on the biggest vertical farm opening in Dubai. I saw a story you did on a swimming pool size in Vegas. Uh, a story you did on the fragility of the Texas power grid. I mean, how do you curate? How do you decide that you're going to go to this story as opposed to that story? Well, I, I think yeah, one of the wonderful things about technology today is that it has impacted every area of our lives. That wasn't always true. Uh, when I start, first started in a, a newsroom as a technology reporter for City TV, I wasn't even allowed to sit with the real reporters because tech wasn't considered an actual substantial thing that anyone should actually care about at all. And uh, we've seen that shift over the years. And, and I always got excited, and especially today, to see the, the prevalence of technology everywhere around us as far as that curation. Uh, I love to read. I love to follow interesting people. But more than anything, I mean, you know this, uh, just having this uh, curiosity. This is something I've always grown up with, which I'm, I'm always curious about what's happening, what's next, what's tomorrow, uh, what's happening tomorrow. And, and I think in technology, it's such a fabulous space to be in as far as, as things changing so rapidly in the future. And uh, there's never a dull moment. So I'm always reading. I'm, I have a small team who also helps with some of that curation today. Uh, but I love to make links uh, in the technology space. So, you know, if we think about uh, AI as an example, you know, thinking about how it impacts all different types of industries and, and focusing on that. So to me, it just feels like uh, curiosity is kind of one of the most amazing skills to have, especially in this day and age. It's elemental, particularly for people who do what we do, which is often interviewing people and finding out what's behind stories and telling the stories as well. I mean, uh, I'm in the midst of, this is not a self-promotion, but I'm in the midst now of doing a book on interviewing with Ken Dykewald, a name you may know from Davos and CEO of uh, something called AgeWave. Um, he's been studying aging for years, but he's also been studying skills that are involved and really 
success and finding uh, success in careers. A lot of it, particularly in the media fields that we're in, has to do just with curiosity. How curious are you? Uh, here's Greg who has a question for you. He says, I'm a virtual Santa performer trying to provide a better experience for children, also a video for their viewing pleasure. Any thoughts on this type of offering? Well, first of all, that's amazing. Um, I, yeah, I'm a curious Greg. person. I read a lot, <laughs> but I haven't thought about virtual Santas at all. So that's new to me. I, I think uh, that's that's exciting. I mean, again, you know, um, one of the things that's always excited me about technology from a, a young age is that not everybody has the same level of uh, access or accessibility to be able to physically go to, to places. So when you say virtual Santa, I mean, the truth is not every family can get into a car and go out to the mall and, and you know, sit on Santa's knee. So I, I think this is really fun to be able to um, uh, just provide a better opportunity for kids to get access to Santa. Uh, so I, I think that sounds like a, a fascinating career choice. Uh, I think you probably want to also invest in terms of a, a virtual Easter bunny, um, a, a virtual, uh, I don't know if it's a scarecrow or something for Halloween, uh, just of course, because the uh, holiday season is so short. So <laughs> that would be the first thing that came to mind is it's, it's seasonal, be careful of that. Well, I uh, commend Greg for creating this virtual Santa and uh, talk about kids, some people not having a car to go see Santa have any thoughts about the digital divide? We still have it very much among us uh, to be sort of understating. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, this is going to be one of the top issues in the next five to 10 years. I mean, it should have been uh, an issue over the past uh, few years as well. And we should have been talking about it more and more. But the digital divide um, is a real thing. We, we've seen it during the pandemic. We've seen kids that have been unable to log on to do virtual learning. We've seen businesses that have been able to grow because they've been able to heavily invest in technology and their cities or towns have the right infrastructure. And then on the flip side of that, we see some rural communities that have trouble connecting and all of a sudden they're left out. So the digital divide is not something that exists in other parts of the world uh, in isolation. This is something that we face here in North America as well and in many areas. So I think that's going to have a, a, a bigger impact. And, and quite frankly, uh, when I hear politicians argue about everything under the sun, um, I would like to hear more and more of them start to talk about this as a real issue, as an issue that needs to be solved, especially when it comes to seeing growth in our economy with small business owners. If we can't have that level of connection and access to technology, we're just missing out on the growth that, that could exist over the coming years. Yeah, I was struck by when you spoke of or alluded to North America because I know you and your husband, uh, Chris, are very interested in geopolitics, and there's a sense... Remember, I taught American literature for many years. I once had a Peruvian student come up to me and say, why do you call it American literature? I mean... Canada, South America, all, in fact, Toronto, you're in the American League, uh, the Toronto Blue Jays. But there's, there's a, I think, a sense that a lot of people have that we should be thinking more broadly about North America, about the United States and the Colossus to the south here from Canada, that we ought to be seeing ourselves more kind of in some kind of unity, not necessarily as a sovereign state, but really in the ways that used to allow for more free movement between Canada, Mexico, United States generally. 
Yeah, I mean, this is especially true in, in the digital space. So uh, a lot of people who are listening may not know this, but uh, the Canadian government is trying to introduce uh, new regulations in terms of Canadian content as it applies to content creators creating that content for online audiences. We've always had this thing in Canada where you need to, if you're a television broadcaster, produce a certain amount of Canadian content. And they're trying to apply some of those uh, rules from the broadcast industry to the digital industry. But all of a sudden you have content creators who are saying, hey, I am in Canada, but my audience is everywhere in the world. There are no borders. And it becomes more difficult to actually put these regulations in place. So I think you're exactly right. I mean, it's harder to think about uh, many industries in the context of, of borders that we have in place when we know that the internet has kind of stripped away some of those borders and more and more we have this, this global market. So um, I always try to use broader terms even when talking about uh, connecting and, and technology technology in general and thinking about what's happening in other parts of the world, because I think it's important that we no longer kind of live in, in isolation and, and think about these borders preventing us uh, from doing certain things, whether it's in business or our personal lives. I want to go to some more questions and also ask you about your other bestseller book and a few other things. But before I do any of that, what do you think about the Pope's apology, going to Canada and apologizing to indigenous people and all the terrible things that have been done to those people through the years past? Well, this story is one that has been one of the biggest stories of the year in Canada when we, we've seen the Pope over the past few days uh, do a bit of a tour across the country and, like you said, do an apology to Indigenous communities. And uh, I think, you know, although there probably are some people in these communities who are, are relieved to see this, who are happy to, to see him come and actually make this high-profile apology, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, it's a, a little bit late. Uh, I, I think also so, um, you know, when it comes to uh, conversations around uh, religion, which is never a comfortable topic for anyone, you know, it's, it's not just apologizing about the residential schools. Uh, the, the Catholic uh, Church, of course, has had its own string of problems with um, sexual abuse in children. And so to me, it just feels like, hey, I, I know we want to live in a society where we're always forgiving. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think this is probably a, a tough one um, for many people to accept. Maybe too little, too late. Uh, James from San Diego wants to know what technology could be the most beneficial for education and productivity in the U.S., maybe nationwide broadband? Yeah, I mean, I think it's infrastructure, right? And and I think that um, as much as I get excited about actual uh, consumer-level technology that can have an impact on in classrooms or in learning, I think at the end of the day, if we were able to have infrastructure that connected everybody in a different way so they had faster, uh, more reliable internet at an affordable price, I think that would be a total game changer. And I think the internet still today is one of those things when there is an outage, um, and this does happen now and again, we think of it okay, well, you know, this is just a nice to have. But in 2022, for so many of us, you know, the internet is our business. The internet is the way that we connect. The internet is the way um, we're able to talk to family members, whatever that might be. It certainly is more of utility than it's ever been before. Well, speaking about the internet and business, uh, you did write this book on how you can, well, increase your good fortune in terms of uses of the internet. And um, I want to talk to you about that a bit. Um, we're talking about uh, Amber's book, uh, Power Funding, um, which uh, also was a bestseller. And there's a lot of emphasis in there on Twitter and LinkedIn, which struck me, uh, particularly in light of the fact that I did an interview recently with a guy um, uh, who was 
for many years the chief editor and writer and producer of the evening, uh, the late show, excuse me, uh, the evening show with John Stewart. Um, David Jabberbaum is his name, and he has 6.2 million followers on Twitter. And he was very uh, grateful that I was talking to him about his book because he said, I can't seem to sell books on Twitter. And I thought, this is a strange conundrum with all the followers you have. He does a, a kind of heretical thing about God, and he's written uh, a lot about, in, in a vein that's very irreverent and irreligious, but people like it and think it's comical. So I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are on just getting the word out there. I mean, some people now, are, particularly authors, are finding it, you know, they're wringing their hands. How do I get notice of visibility in my book? But also businesses. They don't know how to use the, the social media. And you've got a book that's a guideline. So let's go through some tips and some advantages that you can actually use. Yeah, I mean, I think if I've learned anything over my career, it's that uh, stop writing books about technology because it changes so quickly. <laughs> so my next book is not going to be about any technology at all uh, because the world is just changing. So uh, forgive me, what's the next book going to be about? I don't know. It just it can't be about technology uh, because, uh, you know, one month to the next, uh, things have definitely uh, evolved. Uh, but I, I think it's a good question as far as you leverage the power of technology. And I, I see this in my own business is that I have a good size audience, uh, not in the millions, but uh, on Twitter and on other platforms. But where I really see the biggest impact with my audience as far as them following recommendations and links is within my email newsletter. And who would have thought, you know, in 2022, when we have all of this great technology to uh, connect us together, to allow us to create content, I would go back to doing something that I did in the early 2000s, which is a, a basic email newsletter. So uh, I think for a lot of people wondering, hey, how do I capture the attention of people? How do I sell to people? It's great to have these public-facing social media platforms and, and, and invest in the content. It's good for your reputation. It's good for reach. It's good for access. It's great for networking. But if you want to sell something, I think you need to develop fans. And that can't always be done through these social channels. You need more intimate ways to do so. Podcasts are a great example of one way to do it. I think email newsletters are another way to do that. So I think we have to think about these different communities where they allow us to create uh, more of a relationship than general social media does today. And I want to correct myself. The John Stewart Show is called The Daily Show. I was thinking about a few other things, and they cascaded into my head. John Stewart now actually is doing a show on Apple, and he, he came under recent attack from an article by Andrew Sullivan where he said uh, he's become too woke. Um, you have any thoughts about woke? I, I, uh, how it affects you? I, yes, I do. <laughs> First of all, I will say that uh, I, I don't want to say I hate that term in the sense that you know it is a word that that people use today, and I, I think language uh, is important. Uh, but I think too often we're seeing that term woke being used to describe people who have progressive ideas. Now, uh, call me naive, but I grew up as someone who always believed that we wanted to do better. We wanted to include more people. We wanted to uh, change the world. We wanted to try new things. And so it was a very progressive way of thinking. And um, so for me, it feels like that word woke has essentially been hijacked by a group of people who use it to describe everything that progressives do. So Generally speaking, I think that um, you know it's not necessarily always fair that that word has such a negative connotation when we know that people are actually doing things in a way that um, they are trying to to really better the world. So I, I don't. It's uh, a pejorative word, but I think Sullivan's criticism uh, had to do with the fact that he felt Stewart was bending over too 
far backwards and all that sort of thing. And Sullivan is an interesting uh, example of someone who blends a kind of progressive idealization. He happens to be gay uh, and sees things progressively through that lens, but also can be very conservative in some instances. Uh, Absolutely. And, and But also he makes a living by sort of critiquing things, right? I mean, I'm always cautious of people who make their living that way. Like, I make a living by helping people use technology and demystifying technology. I'm not saying it's better than the way that Andrew Sullivan makes a living, but he does critique things. That's kind of his thing. He goes on Bill Maher, critiques things, has conversations. It's it's very entertaining and interesting, uh, but, but that's sort of part of his job. So I'm always a little cautious when um, people who are uh, building careers on opinions, um, I don't know if they're always the people that I follow as far as kind of that guiding light in the world. Question from uh, another one of our listeners who wants to know, we often talk about failing upward. Are there any hard lessons that prove to be vital to you in achieving what you have achieved so far? Well, I think um, probably the the biggest lesson that I have learned uh, over my career is to have range. Um, and you actually use that word in the, our conversation off the top. And um, that's something that I've thought about recently is that um, when it comes to failing, I think a lot of people fail because they don't necessarily have range in what they do or what they're offering. and um, Or maybe there are other circumstances, which of course is true as well. Uh, but for me, the biggest lessons I, I, I've learned over my year over the years has really been about um, being able to cover a range of topics, being able to uh, produce a range of content, being able to do a range of things. I think the people in our society today who have range within their businesses or within their skill set are the people who can succeed in a more significant way. Because all of a sudden, you know, if I fail in one area of my business, there are four or five other areas that we can fall back upon. That's not true of every business, but we've been set up like this. So I think range is something that um, is a good thing. I mean, it used to be that you wanted to kind of live in this narrow, you know, little uh, circle or box, uh, plenty of books about that. But I think in 2022, I think range can be a, a huge advantage. Well, you certainly have the range. Uh, but, you know, there's a difference when you do a story, as I saw you, a story you did on fastest jetliners, you know, it's an informational type of story, as opposed to a story I saw you do on cryptocurrency. And you were pretty much taking... You have strong opinions, and your opinions came through. There needs to be more regulation. Uh, where do you draw that line? I mean, that's a journalistic line. It's a very important one, but where do you draw it? Well, I, I think one thing for me, and I, I think it's probably been more than a decade since I've ever called myself a journalist. So I, I think that um, I shy away from that word a lot. I mean, sometimes people use that word and in introduce me or describing me. Uh, but I, I do believe I have an understanding and appreciation for real journalists of the world as far as what they do. Um, I recognize at the same time that I work with a lot of brands. I do a lot of speaking events. There are clients involved in those speaking events. And so I, I kind of see myself as having left that journalism world many years ago. And um, and there is a bit of room for more opinion. Um, you know, not Andrew Sullivan extent of ex opinion, but um, I, I do sometimes have different views on things that I care about. And there are so many things right now in the world I think that many of us are concerned about. You know, climate, um, women's issues, the list goes on and on. So I found over the years, this is probably just a part of getting older, is that um, I've started to understand who I am a little bit better. And I've leaned into some of my opinions. But one of the things that always holds true for me is that I'm willing to change my opinion when new information comes about. <laughs> so um, I think that's kind of a, a good, flexible way to be, especially in this day and age. You stay open, and it's sometimes hard, but um, I commend you for that. Uh, what about, though, when you do ads? 
uh, or when you plug products and so forth. Does that, I know you're not a journalist now, but does that ever present, well, some kind of challenge or problem to you? Um, do you have to, for example, be passionate or feel good about the product that you're plugging, that sort of thing? I think the answer to that is absolutely yes. Um, we have a full-time salesperson who works at Amber Mac Media, and um, since day one, we've had conversations that we only work with brands that um, are a good fit, that we believe in. Uh, more and more, even as of the past year, we're trying to work with brands that are focused on sustainability and on uh, climate action. So we're trying to kind of uh, steer our work with brands in a direction that um, feels good for us, and we also believe has a, a better impact on the planet. So. That's been a conscious choice. I didn't always have a choice in terms of the brands that I've worked with over the years, uh, but I certainly say no now more than I say yes. And I think um, it, when you disclose those relationships and when you actually believe in the partners you work with, I think you can build a business. Um, and I think all of us in the media world know that if we wanna be able to move forward, in most cases, that's a reality for most publishers and most outlets. You also do, and I, again, commend you for this, um, things in the civic interest. Uh, for example, you were kind of laid low for a while by uh, what I understand was some severe anemia and uterine fibroids, uh, but it gave you an opportunity to really reach out to other women and say, get checked. Uh, and, I, and that was a campaign really, wasn't it? Yeah, so uh, for, for almost a year and a half, I've been uh, battling severe anemia, which, um, you know, for many people can be debilitating. I, I've been fairly lucky in terms of being able to get through this time. And uh, most recently was diagnosed with fibroids, which uh, affect a huge percentage of women. Um, and about 20 to 50% of women diagnosed have real issues um, that can lead to anemia, as one example, like it has with me. Uh, I have found, and, you know, 2022 has been a really hard year for women's health. Uh, reproductive rights is one example, but even just many women who are, are sending me direct messages saying that they're not taken seriously, uh, even though maybe they collapsed on a, a, a hotel room floor from uh, anemia or blood loss or whatever that might be. Uh, I think we have an issue right now with women's health where um, oftentimes um, we don't have the, the care and support and, and even rights in some cases that uh, we need and want and should have in 2022. So as uh, hard as it is to talk about a benign tumor in your uterus to a whole bunch of people online, I recognize how many women are facing this and uh, felt a bit of a responsibility to also share my story in hopes that other people would feel comfortable too. You're feeling pretty healthy for the most part though. You got a lot of fans out there who would like to keep you healthy. Yeah, you know, I'm struggling right now in terms of treatment for this, and uh, I will uh, probably have to have some type of surgery over the next couple of months. Uh, I think this is becoming more and more common for women in terms of making decisions about what they're going to do. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've taken care of my health over the years, and I think even with uh, what I'm facing right now, I think that's helped me a lot along the way. I, I quit drinking um, 21 years ago. I haven't had a sip of alcohol since, so I've always been focused on health, and uh, this is a, a little bit of a, a, a wrinkle but uh, I'll get through it for sure. Were you drinking more than you should have when you quit? Well, I think anyone in their early 20s, especially uh, moving out to San Francisco during the dot-com boom when uh, there was always beer in the fridge, <laughs> I think we all drank a little too much. I was definitely one of those people. And uh, in my early 20s, someone uh, started to kind of notice that I was drinking too much and, and dared me to quit drinking. And uh, I did so for a month. And uh, that was the end of it. I never turned back. So, uh, you know, it was 
one of those experiences where I recognize alcohol for some people is fine. Uh, for me personally, it kind of changed who I was. I didn't like that person and I've had too many family members affected by alcohol. And so I've just chose to live a sober life and I'm happy to see more and more people be upfront about that uh, these days. So yes, I'm sober and I have fibroids. So I never thought I'd be in this point where I'd be talking about these things, but here I am. <laughs> Maintain your sobriety, get rid of the fibroids. <laughs> good point, good point. Very practical advice. I hope they don't drive me to drinking. That's all I know. <laughs> yeah, good line. Quickly, because we're going to come to the end, unfortunately, but say something about the healthcare system up there. Uh, I mean, a lot of Americans listening to this podcast want to know, do we do it better? Do we do it worse? Uh, your experiences, like I say, you've got opinions on everything. So what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think that um, the healthcare system up here was really great until I needed it. <laughs> so uh, that's probably a, a similar experience for a lot of people. It's it's not that you're necessarily going to uh, die to trying to get healthcare, but um, I, I do see more and more that uh, we have issues in terms of uh, nurses uh, being burnt out, doctors being burnt out, waits, uh, waiting time in emergency rooms. There are emergency rooms right now in Canada that are in rural areas that are forced to shut down or have limited hours. This is a regular story taking place here. We don't have the staffing. So I think that the healthcare system in Canada at one point, um, I think, you know, it was adequate. It did its job. But I think what we've seen during the pandemic, probably not used to the uh, unique to Canada, is that there's been a strain on the healthcare system and everybody's getting back to having to get those surgeries. And now it feels like it's on the verge of collapse. Um, and so that's pretty devastating, especially for people who need access to those services. It certainly is not uh, a shining example anymore in my opinion. Well, this may compel another conversation between us, but you have the ear of the prime minister, so maybe you can tell him to get things in better order. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and continued success. You've had a lot of it and you deserve it and you've got more on the way, I'm sure. And uh, also a happy marriage and a young son who uh, sounds like he's really turning into a fine young man. So I wish you the best and uh, thank you so much for being a part of this morning's podcast. Hey, thanks so much, and congratulations on your new show. Thank you for that. Good luck to you. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.